Welcome everyone to Adelaide Writers Week 2022. My name is Ben Brooker and we are here today for a session with Patrick Radden Keefe, who will be streaming in from New York. And we're gonna be talking primarily about his book, Empire of Pain, which is about the opioid crisis in the United States and the Sackler family's part in that crisis. We'll also touch on an earlier book of his called Say Nothing as well, if we get the chance. Before I go on, I do want to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Um, just be aware we are operating under government COVID restrictions this weekend, so please wear masks while you can and maintain social distancing. And I'll also say as well that um, Patrick's books will be available for purchase in the tent, although unfortunately he will not be around to sign them. Um, uh, as per standard Writers Week protocol, we'll have a chat for around 45 minutes and then there'll be a 15 minute question and answer session at the end. So hold any questions you have until then and then I'll invite anyone who wishes to ask a nice concise question that's not a comment or a life story up to the microphone that's just in the central aisle here. Just before I, uh, I welcome Patrick, um, I'll just introduce him to you. So Patrick Radden Keefe is an award-winning staff writer at the New Yorker magazine and is the author of the New York Times bestsellers Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, and Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, as well as two other books, The Snakehead and Chatter. He is also the writer and host of Wind of Change, an eight-part podcast series which investigates the strange convergence of espionage and pop music during the Cold War and was named the number one podcast of 2020 by The Guardian. Can you please join me in welcoming Patrick Radden Keefe? Patrick, I'll uh, just ask that uh, you, can, you can hear us and we're coming in okay. I can, and can you hear me? Uh, just maybe a little more volume would be great. They're on it. Um, thank you for joining us, Patrick, and welcome to Adelaide Writers Week 2022. Um, oh, thank you. I, I, wish, I wish I could be with you in person. Well, we wish you could be here as well, but um, touch wood, uh, this is the next best thing, and we're certainly glad to have you, um, because as we'll discover, this is a, a really important story, and in some ways, I think, actually, it's one of the most important stories of our time, and like a lot of the, um, uh, the, the subjects of your, your books and, and your podcast as well, it's a story that has many different um, facets to it and we'll barely scratch the surface today. But um, before we kind of come to the subject of Empire of Pain, I wanted to ask you about what draws you to the stories that you choose to investigate. Um, I know that you've written extensively about the illicit drug trade before, primarily in Mexico and, and elsewhere. And you've also written a very different um, book about the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and in your podcast, one of the things that you said which kind of stood out to me was that one of the themes that runs through all of your work is this idea of secrecy, of what's hidden from public view. So I wanted to just kind of start by asking you to what extent that idea animates all of your journalism. Uh, thank you. I mean, I should say, first of all, it's, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Um, and um, 
Yeah, I think that's right. You know, my, my first book was a, a book I wrote um, almost 20 years ago about uh, eavesdropping by government agencies. And that was probably where it started, this almost childlike compulsion to, you know, if you tell me you have a secret you won't tell, I'm going to do everything I can to figure out what it is. And I think that that's um, kind of naturally enticing as a narrative proposition for a reader. And I think if you have an investigative bent, um, it becomes appealing, right? The idea that there are, there are you, you can turn over stones and, and see what might be hidden underneath. Um, and as I've moved from one project to another, I think about it particularly in, in human terms. So, I mean, sometimes this is government secrecy or corporate secrecy. Um, but I'm also interested in, in denial and the, the secrets that people keep within a family, for instance, or within a community, or from themselves. Um, following on from that, I wanted to sort of ask you about your, your process as well. Um, with Wind of Change and, and Say Nothing, you, you kind of start, or your, your jumping off point seems to be quite contained stories in a way. So with, with, with Say Nothing, it's the story of, of Jean McConville, um, a, a young mother in Northern Ireland who's um, abducted by the IRA in 1972. And out of that, you, you tell really this kind of sweeping um, story of the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland that spans you know, decades and generations. And you do something similar, I think, with Wind of Change, where there's this one story that fascinates you about this idea that um, um, a rock band may have been sponsored by the, the CIA to create um, a song in the name of kind of CIA propaganda efforts in, in the Cold War. I'm interested, I guess, in um, how much you're sort of aware of where the stories are going to lead you when you start, or is it really just a question of sort of throwing yourself into the rabbit hole and, and emerging wherever you emerge? Yeah, it's it's such a great it's such a great question. I um, so I generally don't start with issues. I mean, I, I certainly I have colleagues at the New Yorker, and there are nonfiction writers who I very much admire, who will start with some issue that interests them uh, from a kind of thirty thousand feet perspective, and then um, they'll try and uh, sort of populate the story with people. I almost always start with people. I sort of I tend to start small. Um, and so usually the, the, the seed of a project for me, um, is a story of people. So in 2013, this woman, Dolores Price died and she had been in the IRA and I read her obituary and that kind of, it, it literally the experience of reading about the death of this one woman ended up expanding into this book about the troubles. And similarly with the Sackler family, um, you know, it, for me, it was the idea that there was this wealthy family that was known for its philanthropy that actually had made a huge fortune selling an addictive painkiller that had killed many people was intriguing to me. Um, and so that, that tends to be the way I start. The trick for me is that um, you always know that along the way there will be these interesting characters who will crop up and sort of narrative surprises and interesting little bits of history or reporting that you want to get in. I think the challenge for me is that I don't want it to feel like too much of a, a grab bag or a picaresque. 
I, I don't want to lose narrative coherence. And so, you know, there's a friend of mine when I was working on Wind of Change, actually, who was listening to the rough edits of the, of the episodes, and he had a great analogy. He said, it's as though there's kind of a winding staircase, and you've got one hand on the banister, and you're, you're kind of leading the listener up the staircase, and you keep pointing on things on the wall to the side, these different little exhibits along the way, but you always need to keep a hand on the banister, you know, that you'll sort of lose people's attention and their trust at the point where they think that you're just um, kind of casually uh, with a kind of attention deficit showing them one interesting thing after another. There has to be some feeling that they that they connect to that central thread. And so that's, um, you know, I don't know that I always figure it out perfectly, but that's the thing that I'm always trying to reconcile is the sort of narrative through line um, and then these interesting things that we see along the way. Right, and somewhere I think you've said that you don't consider that you write books of history even though they do have this kind of tremendous historical sweep to them. And it, it strikes me that, um, and, and I think what you just said kind of cemented this in my mind, it strikes me that in, in a way what you actually write is, is character studies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would totally agree with that. I think that's right. And, and I think that um, ideally you can see through these stories of people a, a deeper series of systemic issues. So, you know, in writing about the Sackler family, for instance, in some ways, I, I think that if you're, if you're reading that book closely, it's a, it's a book about um, a kind of unhinged capitalism and the ways in which private money can uh, corrupt public institutions. But, um, but I wouldn't want to start that way. I, I, I want to have the family in the foreground. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, always, um, I'm always chiefly interested in people. I, it's a bit glib to put it this way, but I've always thought that, you know, if you tell me that you've, if you sit me down over a beer and you say, oh, I've got this amazing story I heard about astrophysics, my eyes might glaze over a bit, but if you tell me you've got you've heard an amazing story about an astrophysicist, right? I, I'm immediately intrigued. I want to know who is this person. What are what are their circumstances? What do you know about them? How did they come to this? And what's their dilemma? And so I I do tend to want to build stories around. Um, I mean, I call them characters. They're real people, obviously, but but build stories around characters. And we will come to the Sackler family in a moment because, of course, they are pivotal to the story that you're telling in Empire of Pain. And, and they're all so fascinating um, within their own right. But I, before we get to that, I kind of wanted to ask you in a way to kind of set up the context for this book because one of the things that fascinates me is this period that you describe in the early part of the book in around the, the middle of the 20th century in, in the United States. There's this kind of almost revolution happening in, in medicine and health science, where I, th I think you say that, um, you know, drugs, you know, new drugs are coming online through pharmaceutical companies virtually every week at this time. And you, you describe something called the, the de-institutionalization of the mentally ill in America. So it's this really interesting moment in Western medicine, isn't it, where these new drugs are coming online, things like um, so-called minor tranquilizers, antipsychotics, and it's really changing the face of, you know, mental health care, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, to me, this was this amazing moment, really, the, the, the birth of big pharma. 
as we know it, which really happens in the aftermath of the Second World War. So in the Second World War, you have the development of penicillin, which is a real game changer. And then you have all of these new antibiotic therapies and various other types of drugs, tranquilizers, as you said. Um, and these companies, which up until that point, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of pharmaceutical companies were not really producing branded drugs. They would, um, they would produce generic drugs of various sorts that then were mixed by pharmacists. Um, and so it wasn't a situation in which they had branded drugs that they were selling by a brand name and marketing in that way. And they start developing all these new drugs in the immediate aftermath of, uh, the second world war and starting to think about product differentiation and, you know, what can we market this for and how would we appeal to doctors to get them to prescribe these drugs? And so you don't just get the birth of a really robust pharmaceutical industry, but also of pharmaceutical marketing. There's this kind of madmen moment when you have all of these advertisers moving into medical advertising and thinking, how do you sell a pill? And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the deinstitutionalization of the, the mentally ill, because I think part of what's interesting and, and to me surprising about this story is that there's a lot of optimism at the beginning, a lot of idealism. I mean, I think when we look at it now, you know, when we look at it from the vantage point of 2022, we see a story of rapacious greed. But I think if you go back and try and sort of put yourself in the shoes of these people, and I, you know, I've read their letters, I've read their, um, you know, their, their articles that they were writing at the time. I interviewed all these old, old, it was mostly men, old, old men in their 90s who were in the prime of their careers at that time. And they would talk to you about the fact that, for instance, up until then, you had just the, these huge asylums across the United States and in places like Australia and, and all over the world where people with, with uh, schizophrenia, various other um, afflictions would end up basically warehoused, often for life. And the treatments tend to be fairly, fairly crude. And then you get the development of Thorazine, this antipsychotic. And suddenly you have all these people who can be treated uh, and leave. They can be treated on an outpatient basis. And so you start to see the emptying out of these asylums. And I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, that's its own story. And there, there are all kinds of downsides to, to that having happened. But at the time, it seemed like a miracle. And there was great faith in the idea that there would be better living through chemistry, you know, that eventually there'd be a pill for everything. And actually, um, Patrick, I think you capture this really well in the book when you write um, the Sacklers' faith that such wonder drugs were a symbol of human progress and a glimpse of the future. So it was this kind of, in a sense, a utopian moment. And I think the other part of what we're talking about was this um, focus really for the first time on, on pain. You kind of describe up until this point, um, pain was not kind of treated seriously by the medical establishment. It, it was viewed as a symptom of other things that were to be treated, but the pain itself was, was not. So really at this time as well, we were at the start of a new conceptualization of, of pain and the importance of treating pain, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, this comes a little bit later. This comes really in the 80s, um, but it, it very much grows out of the other things we're talking about. And yes, there was a, um, there was a kind of revisionist school of doctors who said, we're not taking pain seriously enough. We have 
tens of millions of people suffering from uh, from tr pain that should be treated, suffering with chronic pain. Uh, uh, the approach that the medical establishment has tended to take is just grin and bear it. There's not a lot of medical education at the time uh, about the treatment of pain and what pain means, you know, the, the physiology and the psychology of pain. Um, and much less, you know, what the, what the potential uh, pharmaceutical options would be. Um, and part of this, I think, is that from the beginning, this is a story about pain, but also about addiction. So it was, it was very well known, uh, you know, in the, in the 20th century, but also in the 19th, that the, that the, the poppy, the opium poppy, uh, had incredible medicinal applications and that it could relieve pain. And so you had drugs like morphine, which were available and were used by doctors, but there was a fear that they could be very habit-forming and addictive. And so as a consequence, uh, morphine was used in a kind of sparing way. A lot of patients and physicians were nervous about it. The sense was it was a really severe uh, solution. It was something you kind of, you kept on the top shelf and, and you reached for it when other remedies had failed or when somebody was in an end of life situation. And it was that kind of supposition that some of these doctors in the 80s started to challenge. They started saying, listen, maybe we've been too paranoid about the opioids, about these, these drugs that are uh, derived from the opium poppy. Maybe we should be using them more broadly. Yeah, and I, um, I think we, we might come back to the question of opioids themselves and the pharmacology and the history a little bit later. But um, one of the more interesting to me side notes in your book um, was around opium production now. And people might not realize this because in their minds they might associate opium production with, say, South America or the Middle East. But one of the largest producers in the world is um, Australia, is in Tasmania. There's actually quite a big industry there. Um, I assume you didn't get the chance to um, kind of go there yourself because of COVID. I think you actually, you wrote the book mostly from, from home, I think, kind of phoning people up um, and finding them um, strangely available. Um, but yeah, what, what, did you, what did you find out about um, the opioid industry as it is now and, and that relationship to, to, to Australia? Well, it was amazing. I mean, you had to learn that Tasmania was really the, the breadbasket of the of the opioid boom and of the opioid crisis. Um, and that you had, you had a subsidiary of Johnson and Johnson, which had huge production there. Um, and in fact, the company I wrote this book about Purdue Pharma and their drug Oxycontin, their sole supply, um, of poppies, uh, and the, and the, the, um, uh, the kind of raw, raw material for their drug came from Tasmania. Um, and I was fascinated to, to read about this and to read about the, you know, there are these patterns that repeat themselves across this story. And it's very much a, a capitalist story in which you get people who are incentivized to do certain things. And so part of the story I tell is about sales representatives being incentivized to go out and sell OxyContin. And, you know, if, you, if you're one of the top sales reps and you get lots of doctors to prescribe, then you get free vacations and you get all kinds of inducements and bonuses. And similarly, you had uh, these farmers in Tasmania who farmed other things. They farmed other crops. But at the point where there was suddenly this huge, just insatiable demand for opioids, uh, there were all these incentives created. So it was, you know, we'll, we'll give you a, a free car 
um, if you can plant a few more acres of, of poppy. And uh, so it was kind of remarkable to see in this very remote, um, I mean, not, not as remote to you, but, but, but Tasmania, even, even remote to you um, and, and much more remote to us, uh, the idea that, um, that, that this was the place from which the, uh, the, the, the raw material of this huge opioid craze derived. Um, so we should bring the Sacklers in, in here. You did say a few moments ago that you tend to start your stories with people. And as I was saying, the, the, the Sackler brothers particularly um, are, are fascinating. You, you describe them as three upstart brothers from, from Brooklyn, so your, your neck of the woods, um, Arthur Mortimer and, and Raymond in the beginning. Um, and they, as I was reading, they kind of reminded me of the, the Cerberus, the, the three-headed dog from, from Greek mythology. Um, but it's, it's Arthur, really, who is most central to this story. And we've spoken a little bit already about your kind of attraction to stories that have this kind of element of sort of mystery and secrecy to them. Well, Arthur seems um, to, to almost epitomise this, so it's no wonder that you wanted to write about him. You, you describe him as having a natural sense of secrecy, being a figure of mystery, and this is um, a lovely phrase, I should say, having been a long his life, sorry, having been a long exercise in carefully orchestrated ambiguity. Um, beautifully put. Um, so given all of that, um, and before um, Arthur Sackler and the family acquired Purdue Pharma, which went on to sell OxyContin, what can we say about, in a way, the origin story of the Sacklers and Arthur in particular? Who were these people? So they were, yeah, I mean, they were fascinating... Um... You know, as a nonfiction writer, writing narrative nonfiction, I feel as though it's, you know, the, the stories you tell are only as good as what you find when you go out and you, and you turn over rocks. It's all, it's all found art. And, and the, the original Sackler brothers, and particularly Arthur, have a kind of, um, there's a sort of novelistic grandeur to the lives that they lived, which, uh, which makes it very easy for me as a writer. I mean, hard as a reporter, because I had to go out and, there was a lot of spade work in getting the details. Um, but I found Arthur to be just a very, very compelling character. So they, the, there were these three brothers, and they were born to immigrant parents in Brooklyn. Uh, the parents had come from Central Europe uh, at the turn of the last century and didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they were Jewish. They didn't speak English when they arrived uh, and continued to speak Yiddish at home. And they had these three sons, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. And it's a very American story in the sense that there was a great faith that notwithstanding their humble origins and the fact that they came here with nothing, that within the span of a single lifetime, there was a real expectation that these boys would really make their mark, make a fortune make a difference, uh, have tremendous careers. And the sense was that the vehicle for doing that was education, for that upward mobility was education. Um, and there was also a sense from very, very young that they, the parents wanted all three boys to be doctors. Arthur Sackler later said that by the age of four, he knew he would be a physician. And Arthur is this kind of just early 20th century New York hustler. He, during the Depression, starts getting jobs to support his family while he's still in high school. 
and he, you know, he's running the student newspaper and he's selling advertising. And then there's a chain of, um, of secretarial schools that advertises in the student newspaper. And he proposes to them, well, what if you just made me your business manager? And he's just a high school student, but they, they sort of saw the, uh, the hustle and the ambition and they brought him in and he eventually gets so many jobs that he starts handing off these jobs to his younger brothers and he goes to medical school. But while he's in medical school, he pays his way through working as an advertising copywriter. And so he comes out and he's a psychiatrist and he's doing research, but he also is really interested in the marketing of drugs. And so he ends up having kind of multiple full-time jobs. He's working full-time at an asylum in Queens, New York, uh, doing psychiatric research into the causes of schizophrenia. And then by night, he's running his own medical advertising firm, which becomes tremendously successful. And eventually he starts a medical newspaper, and he's the publisher of that. And he keeps kind of acquiring new things, and I should add acquiring new women in his life as well. Um, he ends up having three wives, and there's a bit of overlap in those relationships. Um, and there's just a sense that the, the world is his for the taking. There's no such thing as a conflict of interest in his book. So, you know, he ends up with a, a drug company and also a, a, a firm that advertises drugs and a newspaper that runs advertisements from his advertising firm, but also advertisements for the drugs that the drug company sells. Um, and he kind of does it all. And I found him kind of beguiling, honestly, as a figure. I, th I think somebody with a very troubling legacy in the end, because his real legacy is, is the hijacking of medicine by commerce. But he does it all with a kind of gusto that it's hard not to admire on some level. Yeah, I mean, you, you write that um, Arthur had discovered that all of his many talents, one thing he was particularly good at was selling things to people, which seems like an absolutely quintessential um, American story. I don't know if it's, I'm, I'm pretty, I don't know if it was my thought or if you put it into my head, but as I was reading, I, I couldn't help but think of Glenn, Gla Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, the, the David Mamet play, um, which is also kind of about um, you know, in, insane and unscrupulous um, selling practices. Um, I, I wonder how much, how much were you conscious of of how, of the story that you were telling was about kind of hypercapitalism, or in a way, almost the beginnings of hypercapitalism, and 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 how much has that kind of informed where where we're at now? Yeah, I mean, I I was very aware of that, and I'm glad you picked up on it. I mean, the Glenn Gary Glenn Ross thing is funny because at the end of the book, there there's a moment where Purdue Pharma, this company, in one of their training sessions, um, for their sales representatives, they show a clip from the film Glenn Gary Glenn Ross to their sales representatives, and for 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 those in the audience not familiar with the play or the film, it's about real estate agents, totally unscrupulous real estate agents who sell worthless property to unsuspecting buyers. Uh, it's about a con man, basically. Um, but there's this mantra they have where they say, always be closing, close the deal. And so Purdue Pharma, in, in instructing its own sales reps how to appeal to doctors with their drugs said, always be closing, just like in Glengarry Glen Ross. So um, 
I think it is very much a story about hypercapitalism. Part of what I was trying to get across was, particularly in the first third of the book, which is about the Arthur years, um, it is an American dream story. And I, and I think that the, you know, the American dream is, is in some respects a myth and a very potent one. But I also think there's some truth to the idea um, that in a short period of time, a very determined person, I mean, I should say, in this case, a white man, uh, which was certainly an advantage and one who had the benefit of a very, of a very uh, elite education, um, was able to uh, totally transform the fortunes of his family and create generational wealth and leave a, a profound mark in the world. What I wanted to do is tell that story, but also tell the flip side of that, which is that there is a kind of mercenary amorality that I think is inextricably woven into that kind of ambition. And so in this case, I think the mark that he left on the world and that the rest of his family left on the world was a really malign one. I think it, it was a bad one, and we're dealing with the consequences even today. Um, but I, I sort of feel as though it's it's it would be dishonest to tell a story, an American dream story, a Horatio Alger story of that kind of upward mobility without acknowledging uh, the dark places that these fortunes sometimes go. So I just want to kind of touch on opioids um, um, again, just, just briefly. Um, you just mentioned how sort of transformative they were for Purdue Pharma, the pharmaceutical company that was was um, run by the Sacklers, and um, you, you quote um, one of their their reps um, as kind of talking about their, their drug repertoire up until the advent of MS Contin in the mid 1980s. They were selling things like antiseptics, laxatives. Um, um, earwax remover, bowel evacuants, um, this incredibly unglamorous stuff. And then suddenly they hit on opioids, which at least in that initial moment, it, it, it strikes me that compared to what they were selling up until that point, there must have been something kind of sexy from a marketing perspective about these drugs, which were not new, I should, I should add. Yeah, ab absolutely. The, yeah, the line, the line that you're referring to, the, the punchline was that the guy... The, the guy in question, a longtime employee of the company, was talking about how, you know, he would he would he, he was not a hit at a cocktail party because he would, you know, he would go and talk about how he spends his days selling earwax removers and bowel evacuants. Uh -huh. um, the uh, and then along comes this new drug. And initially they had a, they had a, um, a painkiller, a morphine based painkiller called MS Contin. And then that gives way to OxyContin. Both of them derived from the opium poppy, both of them very powerful painkillers. But yes, there was absolutely a sense at that time that this was a, a kind of a sexy drug to be selling, in part because it was regarded as quite innovative, particularly OxyContin, was seen as a, a breakthrough. Um, and we, we, can, we can get into it in, in detail if you'd like, but in a nutshell, um, what was really innovative was the, the, not the oxy part, it was the content part. So there was a coating around the pill, a seal on the pill, which allowed the, the active ingredient, which was oxycodone, this very powerful opioid, to filter into your bloodstream slowly over the course of 12 hours. And so 
what this meant was that you could have these jumbo doses of oxycodone that you could administer to people, knowing that they're not going to get the whole hit all at once. It'll slowly, almost as if you know, you're on a drip at the hospital, right? It'll slowly filter into your system, which meant that you only had to take it every 12 hours, which meant, in theory, that you could sleep through the night, which had not been available with these types of painkillers before. And so when OxyContin is released, it becomes this huge hit, um, in part because it, it, it was perceived as innovative, and in part because the, the company that was owned by the Sacklers, Purdue, made a very concerted push to persuade physicians that they should be prescribing these drugs much more than they were, that they, sh they didn't need to worry about addiction, that that was kind of an old wives' tale, that actually these drugs weren't really addictive if you were taking them for pain and a doctor prescribed them. And so what that meant was that within a few years, it becomes the most successful drug on the market, bigger than Viagra, just a huge, huge hit, making eventually billions of dollars every year. And so for the people who worked at Purdue, for the sales reps, I mean, this was... I interviewed all kinds of people who, who went to work for Purdue, having been in other parts of the pharmaceutical industry, and they said, that's the company I want to go to. Those are the people who've really got it figured out. Well, they really did have it figured out because it's, it's quite extraordinary how quickly this story begins to move because you have MS Contin, the precursor to OxyContin on the market in about 1984, 1985. In 1995, OxyContin comes on the market and then by 2001, really, the opioid crisis is in, is in full swing. And, you know, one of the interesting things about your book is I th I'm fairly sure you acknowledge at some point that unlike other books that have been written about the opioid crisis, you don't necessarily focus on the kind of the, the human cost in a way you, I think you're interested in, in getting it um, really what up until now has been a kind of untold story. But there is one moment that I, I do just want to kind of read from the book, which I think um, paints an incredibly vivid picture of um, the opioid crisis by this point in, in the early um, 2000s. So you write that pain patients were doctor shopping, seeking appointments with multiple different physicians and stockpiling prescriptions, selling pills or sharing them with friends, sometimes dealing to feed their own habit. Black market pills sold for a dollar a milligram and suddenly everyone was a dealer, a shadow OxyContin sales force that would come to dwarf Purdue's own. Some communities began to resemble a zombie movie as the phenomenon claimed one citizen after another, sending previously well-adjusted functioning adults into a spiral of dependence and addiction. You could spot them out and about, pill heads, fiending outside the mini mall or nodding off in a parked car, a toddler bawling in the back seat. For all Purdue's instructions to the sales team to avoid using words like powerful when describing OxyContin, it was a fiercely potent narcotic, and that was part of the appeal for the user, but also part of the danger. An overdose could induce rep respiratory failure. You fall into a sleep so deep and bliss blissful that you stop breathing. At small hospitals, patients were admitted close to death. In trailers and dingy apartments and remote farmhouses, police and paramedics would arrive to a familiar scene the OxyContin overdose, and set about trying to revive the user. I think that's a really powerful and vivid way of encapsulating the human cost of the crisis at this point. What I sort of wanted to ask you about, Patrick, is, is really the way that Purdue were marketing this drug that, as you were saying, they knew was addictive but denied. 
Um, and what really struck me reading Empire of Pain was, and you've written about the drug cartels in Mexico, the extraordinary similarities between the way Purdue was operating and the way that illicit drug gangs operate, right down to the fact that, and this is extraordinary to me, Purdue were giving away multi-month subscriptions to OxyContin at one point. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that was so striking for me is my background. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't really written about the pharmaceutical industry before, but I'd written a lot about Mexican drug cartels. Um, and so that was a world that I knew, I knew much better. And in fact, the way I came to this project, it, it, it happened in a kind of roundabout way where um, in around 2010, the Mexican drug cartels suddenly started sending more Mexican heroin into the United States. And it started as, as a riddle. Nobody really understood why it was that suddenly the streets of the U.S. were awash in Mexican heroin. Um, it's very, very American that we responded the way we did. Of course, you know, <laughs> um, because in the United States we tend to only ever think of these things as as demand as supply side issues and not demand side issues. You know, there was this sense of like, well, why are these why are these Mexicans suddenly sending all this heroin? And of course, the answer was demand that it was U.S. demand for Mex for Mexican heroin and. The reason that you had that demand was that you had a generation of people who hadn't started with heroin. They'd started with OxyContin. And their on-ramp to opioids was these legitimate FDA-regulated pharmaceutical products. And then eventually they graduated to heroin. So that was the first kind of connection between the, um, the, the licit world of big pharma and the illicit world of uh, street drugs that struck me. And then once I got into it, you're quite right. I mean, the, the you know, free samples is, a, is an old, uh, a very tried and true. It's as old as the drug trade itself. If you have any addictive substance that you're selling, you know, as, as the old joke goes, the, the first hit is always free. You know, the first hit will always pay for itself. And with OxyContin, you had this as well, that you actually had the Purdue creating these, um, these coupons, this coupon system where they would give them to doctors and say, just get your, we want to acquaint your patients with the drug. Um, you also had, you know, the, the drug cartels in, in my reporting, one of the things that's always been really striking to me is um, how sophisticated they are about thinking about domestic markets and who we're targeting, who's going to be susceptible to our product, who would we interest. And you have a similar thing with Purdue and OxyContin, where there were certain regions of the country that they were targeting initially, where you know they were looking for places where you have uh, a lot of people who are out of work, people who've got workers' comp, maybe they've been injured on the job, a lot of chronic pain, uh, not a lot of pain specialists, doctors who really know about pain in these drugs. It was more what they were looking for were general practitioners who were kind of naive about opioids. So, so people who are just family physicians and a sales rep comes in and says, hey, doc, if you have patients in pain, we have this total silver bullet. It's good for what ails you. It's amazing. And it has no side effects. And it's not addictive. And there were many, many, many doctors who were seduced by that pitch. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, should, I should say, just in fairness, that in the kind of hyperbolic rhetoric that we sometimes see around the Sacklers, you'll occasionally see politicians or journalists saying, oh, you know, they're no different from 
Chapo Guzman or a Mexican drug cartel. And I don't know that we need to go quite to that extreme, right? Like they didn't have bands of assassins beheading people in the streets. Um, but there are really striking commonalities in terms of the, um, in terms of the techniques used to sell an addictive product that was hugely lucrative, but had a tremendous human cost. We will um, come to questions in a few moments. So maybe just have a think about that. And in a few moments, I'll invite people to um, come up to the microphone if they do have a question. Um, Patrick, I think we were kind of talking there a little bit around the issue of class, which is of course central to this story. But I think race is as well. And the, the question of accountability for the Sacklers, I think, is one that we should come to. And of course, things did turn um, for the Sacklers. And one of the most important parts of this was um, Nan Golden's campaign, essentially to have institutions that the Sacklers had provided philanthropic funding to and kind of plastered their name all over for those institutions to kind of take down that signage. So that was kind of one turning point in this. But what I wanted to ask you about was, in a way, one of the barriers, it seems to me, to the Sacklers being made to feel the full accountability of what they'd done in terms of generating this crisis was the fact that they were white executives. And there was this sense that you write about in, in the book that wealthy white executives don't belong in prison. And also that prosecutors, in a way, had this view that... Um, filing criminal charges against publicly traded companies was something that you just didn't do, which again feels like a very a kind of quintessentially um, a kind of American element of this, of this story. To what extent were those things significant in terms of getting in the way of the Sacklers being made to feel responsible for the crisis that they'd essentially created out of nothing? H hugely significant. And... Um... And I'm glad you put it in those terms because, I mean, the other thing to remember um, is it's not as though the United States is a permissive country when it comes to law and order, right? We have a decades-long, failed, incredibly punitive war on drugs in which people who aren't white and don't come from these kinds of environments and have been involved in the street trade and drugs... Um, or even just consumption of illegal drugs, have been on the receiving end of a, a world of vengeance. You know, we have 2 million people incarcerated in this country. And, and there's no way to tell that story about mass incarceration in the United States without reference to the war on drugs. So the contrast is really staggering, right? That, that on the one hand, you have this incredibly punitive approach to specifically to questions of illegal drugs. And on the other hand, you have a situation in which this family, which has made billions and billions of dollars from a crisis, a, a huge public health crisis that's killed a lot of people, um, that they skate free and that, in fact, you know, no executives from the company ever went to jail. And you have this kind of shell game that I think is, and I should say, I, it, it, I you know, it, I'd be very surprised if this didn't happen in Australia as well. This is not uniquely American, but I feel as though the, the ascendancy of the corporation creates a kind of a shell game in which the corporation can plead guilty. The corporation can pay fines. 
But no human, you know, no white-collar executive actually fears that they might be taken away from their family and incarcerated, or even that they personally would need to pay significant fines. And, and that's a story that gets repeated again and again and again. And I do think that the fact that they're white is significant. But I also think that there's, a, there's another kind of subtle thing that plays into this, which is that they are products of elite institutions and elite worlds. And one thing, and I, and I say this to you as somebody who is a, you know, a product of those institutions myself. Like I write for the New Yorker magazine. I, I went to Yale Law School. I went to Cambridge University. I, I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I've been a part of that club. And I think that there's a very subtle part of this story, which is that that's true of the Sacklers, but it's also true often of the federal prosecutors or the state prosecutors who are thinking, well, how do we pursue this company? And it's true of the fancy corporate lawyers who the Sacklers hire and who their company hires. And so there's a kind of clubbiness to the whole proceeding. And nobody will ever come out and say it in the terms that you did, which is, oh, but, you know, we don't really think that people, that people like this belong in jail. But I, I think if you look closely at what they do say, that that is the undercurrent. That is often the unspoken uh, inference, at least that I take, from the types of postures that these people have. They say, oh, they're leaders in the community. How could they, you know, they would, uh, jail is not the place for them. Um, and and I, find the, uh, I find the moral hypocrisy of that really breathtaking. So we will go to any audience questions um, in just a moment. So please do head up to the microphone in the middle there if you do have a question to ask. Um, before we come to that, and I feel like I might be preempting an audience question here, but Patrick, I have to ask you this, and I'm sure you've been asked many times before, but what has the response of the Sackler family been to your book? Silence. Um, it's been silence. You know, when I was working on it, uh, they were very exercised. One, there were, so there are three branches of the Sackler family, each descended from one of those original three brothers. Arthur Sackler's family, uh, sold their interest in Purdue Farm and the family business before the introduction of OxyContin. Um, and then there's Mortimer's family and Raymond's family. And the Arthur family and the Mortimer family have been, were kind of silent all the way along. They didn't want to talk to me. The Raymond family was very aggressive, threatened to sue me. I got, you know, dozens of emails and letters from um, a very vexatious lawyer who they hired to try and kind of shut me down, basically, to say... Um, you better watch out because uh, we may want to sue you. And um, they were they kept that up right up to the to the last minute. And then the book came out and it's been silence since then. Uh, and I kind of don't anticipate hearing anything from them at this point. Okay, so I think we'll take our first question from the audience. Hi, we always hear this through the vision of it being an American problem. I'm Pharmacist Australia and I know that we have this same problem here. How far exactly does this fiasco go? Oh, very far. I mean, there's a, there's a, I'm, gl I'm glad you asked that. So there's a section in the book where I talk about how um, at a certain point it starts to catch up with Purdue Pharma in the United States. 
And the Sacklers are very concerned because these, these years of huge profits are starting to level off, in part because consumers and patients and doctors are all starting to worry that, you know, maybe these are not drugs that we should be prescribing for, say, moderate pain. And I should say, a drug like OxyContin, I think, still has important uses um, in specific circumstances, but it's not... Um, you know, Purdue's marketing phrase for the drug originally was it's the one to start with and the one to stay with, um, that, that doctors should just be immediately uh, putting patients on it and then keeping them on it forever. And I think there was growing skepticism in the U.S. about that. So what, what ends up happening is the Sacklers have a company called Mundi Pharma, which is their international wing, and they start looking at emerging markets. And they start looking at China and Mexico and Colombia, various South American countries, India. And they actually are going in and essentially using all those same dodgy marketing tactics, which they, they had gotten in trouble for in the United States. It was very similar to the, the, um, the operations of Big Tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, when they got in trouble and they saw the market level off in the U.S., they thought, well, what about Africa? And so... Um, you're quite right. I mean, these issues do exist uh, the world over. And um, and I think, you know, maybe not to the extent that they that it's happened in in the U.S., but that tends to be the way we, you know, we, we have a tendency to take any problem and dial it up to 11 in this country. Um, and I think the kind of absence of regulation, the kind of degree of regulatory capture uh, in this country makes that easy. But, but listen, it's... Um, it is an issue all over the world, and that's in part because the Sacklers and their company had global ambitions. And I should say, subsequent to that um, answer, I read recently that um, opioid deaths in Australia now outnumber deaths from road accidents. So we should absolutely not um, really content ourselves with thinking that this is a, a problem specific to America. It is absolutely a global export at this point. And 50% of people going on to methadone-like programs in Australia going on from opioids, from prescribed opioids that were non-addictive. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Hi, Patrick. Your book was published uh, amid a pandemic, and in it you briefly talk about Pfizer and how Pfizer misled regulators about its drugs in the 1950s, do you think the pandemic has had a negative impact on critical thinking when it comes to big pharma? Oh, I'm glad you raised this. I mean, this has been a very awkward thing for me because I published the book uh, in April, almost a year ago. And there's a story, as you suggest, there's a story in the, um, in the first part of the book where uh, Pfizer bribes an FDA official. And at the point where the book came out, I had just had my first Pfizer shot and uh, was eager to have my second one. And it's been a tricky thing for me because I think that one suggestion that the book makes uh, pretty unequivocally is that we should not be too trusting when it comes to big pharma. And we should not be too trusting when it comes to the way big pharma is regulated. That this is a profit-driven industry. And that is, that is what it is chiefly after. Um, And that that should mean that we all have a degree of healthy skepticism about um, the the motivations of the industry and the rigor of the regulatory apparatus. Having said that, 
I don't think that the answer to that is that we should slide all the way to the other end of the continuum and be totally skeptical and not believe anything and not believe that the industry could ever do anything that was good um, and think that we should you know, not trust anything, for instance, that the FDA says. And so there have been times where um, people have tried to kind of enlist my book in a, you know, in an effort to argue that we should not, we shouldn't trust the vaccines, we shouldn't get vaccinated. Um, and that's the last thing that I would want to see happen. I think the vaccines are a miracle. I think we should all get vaccinated. Um, and I, and I do think honestly that most of us walking around can kind of hold two ideas in our head, right? We can understand that life is complex and you shouldn't be totally credulous on the one hand or totally suspicious and paranoid on the other, and that in fact, you know, what being an adult is in a complex world is sort of negotiating those two poles and trying to be as smart as you can about the decisions you make. Um, uh, there is, I don't want to overstate this, but because I think, I think vaccine hesitation is really complicated and has complicated roots and um, there's a bunch of sort of culturally specific uh, reasons why people come to these kinds of conclusions, but I almost think it's, it's maybe the opposite of what I think you're getting at in your question, which is that I wonder at times whether part of the reason that you, you, you have so many people who are reluctant to trust the, the FDA or, or the, these big pharma companies in terms of the vaccines isn't that their reputation has actually really suffered because of the opioid crisis, because we see these very companies pleading guilty um, or settle or settling these these massive lawsuits um, for hundreds of millions of dollars, and we realize that they uh, that they they misstepped in a really severe way with profound negative consequences in the recent past. I think we have time for perhaps one more question. Thank you for your talk, and my question is about since uh, marijuana has been legalized for medical reasons and also recreational reasons in the US. Has that mitigated the opioid crisis at all? Uh, it hasn't, I'm afraid. Um, the crisis has only intensified. I should say, just, just, just to be very clear, because we haven't mentioned it yet, that the opioid crisis has evolved. So the opioid crisis today is not really an OxyContin crisis or even really a prescription drug crisis in the main. What ended up happening is lots and lots of people graduated to heroin and then moved on to fentanyl. Um, and so today, what is killing the most people is, is fentanyl, which is highly lethal, um, but chemically related to all these other opioids. Um, but last year was actually the worst year in the US. Uh, over 100,000 people died last year from overdoses. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I know that um, there are a lot of people thinking about just alternative alternative solutions for pain, um, particularly for moderate pain, and cannabis would certainly be one of them. So I, I think that there, there's definitely efforts underway to, to propose that as an alternative. But unfortunately, I think the, um, the genie is kind of out of the bottle at this point. And uh, there are not enough resources to try and tackle the problem. And, and, and COVID obviously hasn't helped because there's been a more pressing public health emergency um, even as the opioid crisis continued to intensify in the background. 
Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have um, for this session. There was so much more I wanted to unpack. It's um, such a rich book, a remarkable work of scholarship. And I have to congratulate you, Patrick, I meant to do this at the, at the beginning, for really twice now with Say Nothing and then with this book. You've pulled off this extraordinary feat, I think, of writing what really are big, dense books that take in many generations and decades, but you have this absolute lightness of touch. They're incredibly readable in the best possible sense of that term. Um, so I highly recommend um, both of them, both um, remarkable books and important books, which have, I, I think, a, a great well of um, empathy and human feeling at their, at their heart um, beneath um, all of the kind of um, statistics. So congratulations, Patrick Radden-Keefe, and oh, would everyone here please join me in thanking Patrick. <laughs> <laughs>